This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Renthal Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains, and sprockets. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. And seeing as we're talking about the Czech round the world SBK, why not be like the man of the meeting, Jonathan Ray, and get yourself some Renthal handlebars for your off-road bike or your street bike. Gordon Ritchie joining myself, Stephen English on the podcast. And Gordo, I say that Jonathan was the man of the meeting. He scored the most points. He finally won his first race this season. But let's be honest, we're going to be talking about something else at the top of this show. That top rack versus Bautista battle and then whether or not we actually still have a championship alive. Well, yeah, I mean, that was the that was the thing that lit things up in the weekend. Um, a proper fight um, where the riders were using the, the biggest advantages they had on their motorcycles and riding the wheels off them. I mean, you could see how hard Bautista was trying um, because he had interference. He's, when he broke, when when the incident happened, and Top Rack was sadly out of the race, and it all came to a finish, I think lap seventeen. Um, ultimately, Batista could go faster because it was all nice and smooth, and the way that bike needs to be ridden, very hard but very smooth, hitting all your apexes, do, being very very precise and exact. We couldn't do that with Top Rack, mauling him every other corner, and uh, outbreaking him every single time, including one time around the outside. And the entry to turn one, which I don't remember seeing anybody doing there. Um, what an amazing battle. It was just fantastic to watch. Yeah, I have to say that time was great because Bautista went for the inside line and said, Do you know what, I'm going to take the high ground. I'm going to take track position. And then Toprak just said, no, you're not. I'm coming around. And it was <laughs> yeah. it was great. But Most was, Most was a crazy weekend, Gordon. There's only words can be used to describe it. We had... Yes. Wet weather on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Showers that came out of nowhere. We had a first-time race winner in the 300 class in both races. We had a first-time winner in the Supersport class, and no doubt you were a very proud Scotsman on Sunday afternoon. And then we had three different race winners in the Superbike class from three different manufacturers. We had all five manufacturers inside the top five for race one. It was it was a great weekend all in. Like, I always enjoy going to Most. It's very difficult to find a good hotel in Most. But once you're there and you get to the racetrack, it just always delivers good racing. Yeah, it's a bizarre place, Most. Um, as I say, it's Fairy Tale Castle at the top of the hill when you're standing looking up the way at the track. And then you look down and there's like Satan's Workshop of all these old uh, heavy industries and, and chimneys spewing out smoke and all that stuff. It's a weird place. It shows its roots um, in being an old school track. It's a little sketchy in places. Turn 13 in particular is the one that the riders still really, really want someone done about, and I don't blame them. Um, but it's 21 corners and 4.2 kilometres. That's a lot of corners to get through. It makes people have to race close. There's constant changes of direction. Um, it's a kind of wonderful mix of the old and the, 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 the being modernised, but it's got character dripping from every pore and I think that helps in the racing very much so yeah you'd have to say Gordon like turn one turn two was somewhere that no one liked when we first went there but it just always gives us some sort of big storyline each race lots of excitement through there the change of the direction in the middle of the lap turn 13 that you mentioned it's it's sketchy corner there's no doubt about that and I was chatting to a few of the riders after the race and they said did you see the move Toprak made into thir- into 13? He just knew he had to come through then. And it's one of those situations where everyone else is holding your breath when you come through that corner. And then if you're brave, you just try and make a move. But Gordo, let's, let's kick it off on the show with the battle that we've been waiting for all season, really, because the Toprak versus Bautista scrap in race two was just one of the best battles we've seen on track in a long time. Toprak went in, into that race, 49 points behind Bautista, but he pulled back that advantage that Bautista had from the best part of 90 points it was at Imola. So for Toprak, it's been a case of chipping away a bit by bit. And then this looked like it was going to be, let's go into the summer break, a double win for Toprak, 44 points in the championship and properly game on. But the second that Toprak had his crash, the whole dynamic change, it's 74 point advantage for Bautista, four rounds to go. Very difficult to see how Toprak comes back into a championship fight. Yeah, I mean, that 74 is almost three full race wins. 
with, you know, as you say, four rounds left. That's an awful lot to ask. But a couple of DNFs. Remember, there was the incident last year at Magnicure um, with Bautista and Jonathan. Um, but Razgat Luglu has had bad luck. And Bautista's had, you know, one or two things that didn't quite go the way it should have went for him. And, um, you know, in one of the Miller races. But ultimately, yeah, it's we're running out of room now. And that's a shame because it would have been great to, to go to the summer break with that points gap reduced for the neutrals. It doesn't make any difference to you or I. You know, it doesn't matter who wins. I'm a journalist. It doesn't matter to me. But you can see for every other dynamic in the championship, it would be a lot better going in with a 40-something or you know, a one and a half going in with four rounds to go in the summer break, five weeks of dreaming of what might happen, five weeks of the riders going through all their mind games of what if. So, yeah, it's changed it. It's an unfortunately negative outcome of what was an otherwise incredibly uh, positive weekend in almost every regard. Um, and it's not like it leaves a bad taste in the mouth, and it's just it does leave you thinking, oh, what could have been? Especially after such an amazing race, just a remarkable race for it to all go wrong in such a weird fashion. I mean, it was very, very unusual what happened at first. But you knew, I think anybody that watches racing for a long time, as soon as that crash happened, they thought, something weird there, that's not a high side. The only angle we saw repeatedly was from inside, two cameras on the inside. And it was like, there's something all right here. You know, everybody that was, as I say, that was experienced and race watcher just thought, no, that's, there's, there's something happened there. That wasn't a, maybe electronics turned out not to be, turned out to be tired. Yeah, I know for me, I, I when we were calling it on air, there was no way I saw a tyre issue, but I, I couldn't see it from the replay. But then you come back in and it was tyre. Given the top rack had the electronics issue in Imola, you jump to that conclusion straight away. But yeah, it was a tyre issue. Pirelli held their hands up straight away, Gordo, but it's one of those situations where at the end of the day, we end up losing top rack from that battle. And the sense of just deflation for everyone the second that that crash happened because it was just such a good battle and it was so exciting to see top rack all the way through this weekend has been in great form and not just on track but off track as well we saw him go into the pit box swinging his baseball bat on friday we saw him on the bat phone and you know every time we saw top rack during the practice and super bowl sessions he was up to something and then when he was on track he was just pure top rack and the battle in race one up against Johnny was what we've seen from them in the past where both of them were brave. Johnny a little bit braver. He had less to lose than Toprak. And then in those closing stages, Toprak's coming, 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 but had just given himself a bit too much ground to make up. But picking up 20 points on Saturday, Alvaro qualifying on the fifth row with grade after the yellow flags in the Super Bowl session. It just all seemed to be building to this big climax of clawing back the championship. And then it, just went out the window straight away. Yeah, and it is particularly unfortunate the way it happened. Top Rack was a joy in the weekend, and even you know in the media scrum after the second race, he wasn't shouting and bawling and waving his arms about and all that stuff. He was just explained in his own calm manner what happened. He's obviously disappointed, but he's still laughing and joking. The whole weekend, Top Rack was just, everybody he saw, he was shaking hands. He's always like that, but he was, you could tell, as he said on you know, he wanted to win all three races. He had arrived in Moss thinking, you know what? I can do all three of these. And he loves to win all the races. He's not really worried about Super Bowl or any of these other things. He wants to go away from a weekend having won all three races. You know, he's he's other riders have done it maybe more often than than, than he has. You know? Um he's not dominated in things and it's difficult to do with Batista and Ray around. But he was so excited when he got his first triple win. And you know he just felt he's definitely on it. I mean, he was he just knew he was going to be able to to do it, and he probably would have. You can't say what happened the last five. Well, that's normally when Batista goes away. But did you see that sign? Did you see that happening? You know, even if with all the fight they had in that, to me, if there was going to be a race where Top Rack could hang on in a long race and fight Batista toe to toe and come out on top, that was it. To me, that that could have been it on Sunday, and then it it didn't. You know. For me as well, Gordo, because it just had that refuse to lose ethos yeah, for Top Rack. And exactly. He's been on the podium every race through the course of this season, except for that tyre issue 
at the weekend and then whenever he had the crash in Phillip Island. So for Top Rack, it's been a super consistent season. But 74 points adrift, it's about right for what we've seen through the course of the year so far. Alvaro had his couple of retirements. He had the crash in Indonesia and then Imola as well. It's been a wash for them and Top Rack's just hasn't quite had the bike underneath him this season to be able to bring it to Bautista. I found it quite interesting this weekend, Gordo, that obviously the 500 revs affects the Ducati in some ways around a track like Most. That cha- the change of direction, maybe you have to make an extra gear shift, but still on the start-finish straight, we saw that Toprak needed to absolutely just be a monster on the brakes. So we still had it, even on a short start-finish straight, that you had to be very defensive against Alvaro. If that straight was 100 metres longer, like at Donington Park or something like that, suddenly you're caught, you're passed, and you can't defend. At least in Moss, Toprak could defend. And then as we move it on as well, Gordo, to just bring Johnny Ray into the scrap as well, we saw Ray could defend and attack as well. The Super Bowl race in particular, that fight that he had with Toprak, speaking to Johnny after the race, he said, it was nice to be in a fight with Toprak and force him to make some mistakes because... He hasn't been able to do that this year. So we had those three riders back at the front of the field again this weekend. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan moved up to third in the championship um, after Sunday, after, you know, uh, he w- he really was not happy on Friday and they all managed to turn it round. Um, that was, in many ways, the first race was vintage Johnny, but that kind of weekend for Kawasaki and Ray is kind of like old times because he didn't always start great on, on Friday, Jonathan. You know, usually, but not always. But they would always turn it around by Sunday, Saturday, Sunday. They'd always manage to get the result, whether it was Johnny delivered, whether it was a change in setup, and then Johnny following on with it. Um, but you know, that was a very, very strong weekend for Ray um, at a track. And there's the other thing: there's the that's the, the the only track left that he hadn't won at on the current calendar. Moss was the one he hadn't won a race at, so you can tell that he is obviously it's obviously a bogey, not a bogey track, but it wasn't his best track. And he's fallen off there trying too hard and stuff because of deficiencies in setup or power or whatever it was wrong at the time. He just couldn't compete at Moss before and he ended up winning vintage-style Johnny in the first race. Great fight in the second. Third, yeah, okay, we ended, he ended up with a, a problem, a tyre problem as well. Um, and he ended up getting jumped at the end, which is unusual for Ray. But th- so to me, that now points at there was obviously something wrong with the tyre. That was showing, although Jonathan didn't say anything to us, to the assembled media, um, the print media, if you want to call us that, about that. Specifically, I don't remember him saying that on Sunday. Um, but he obviously had a problem because he nearly got done by Bassani on the line as well. But still finished third, you know. I mean, that was a great weekend for Jonathan considering how this year's been. Yeah, Johnny used a different tyre to top rack as well. He was using the older spec for that SC1. But this was a weekend, Gordo, where the tyres did dominate, whether you were looking at the fact that we didn't have the Q tyre, we didn't have the X tyre, we had a zero tyre for the Super Bowl race, and then we had to use the SC1, the hardest tyre, really, that, that we see all the way through the season, was being used this weekend. Pirelli said Most was always going to be tough on tyres. I think that given that we went so hard with the compounds, everyone was a bit surprised what happened to top rack. Last year, there were issues. Gerloff, Lekwona, they both had tyre delaminations in the races. So it's no wonder that they went a little bit safer with it, but still ended up catching out some riders. But Gordo, when you look at the tyres for Saturday, it was really interesting to see who was willing to take a risk. We saw a lot of the riders use a full wet tyre, the likes of Bautista and some others. Ray, Locatelli, Razgiri at the front of the field, Petrucci all used the intermediates. And Johnny was just able to switch on his inters quicker than everyone else. And this was something a lot of riders were really impressed by on Saturday. They just said, you know what, if you were able to push that hard to activate the tyres that quickly, then fair play, you deserve the race win. Yeah, and the funny thing about the intermediates is they're there for a reason. And trying to get riders, 99% of the time, get them to use them are like, ooh, no way. Because they just think that if it dries out and they're on inters, they're, they're going to be like just a slightly better version of the wets. And they don't. They certainly don't give the same grip in the full wet as a as a proper a proper wet design tire. So they're quite reticent to use them. But that was obviously the one to use. Okay, I suppose with hindsight, it's easy to say that. But an inter will still give you enough in each of those conditions, changing conditions, for you to get there or thereabouts. And 
you know, you you could see top right chasing Jonathan, but he made a couple of mistakes. It would have been interesting to see if Jonathan had won that race if top right hadn't got overexcited a couple of times earlier in the race when it was starting to dry and he ran off and he remember he went on to the paint for quite a long time and lost a few places. If he hadn't done all those things, maybe because he was running a slick, but because Jonathan had an intermediate, for all those laps that, that Top Rack might have missed out on, Johnny was able to bang in a fast lap. And the better conditions were he could go faster. Okay, his tyres were used up, consumed at the end, as it's going to be when you know, as an inter on a drying track. But it was more riders I think now will feel more amenable to running an inter because it does seem to give you enough grip in the wet to to not be too sketchy. But if it starts drying out, you can ride it almost like a slick. Yeah, it's not a slick, but that was the story of Johnny's race. He could keep the pace. That was one of the things like I, I mentioned a few times during that race about Aragon a few years ago. I, I had it in my head that Reading was using an intermediate tyre. He was using a slick tyre and everyone chasing him down was using the inter. And the inter was within a few seconds of the slick time, but you gave up too much time if you were on the wrong tyre. That's where the inter came into its own that race, but it was just sheer bravery from Reading to spot the chance to be able to use the slick. But we saw on on Saturday's race that you could use the inter, and I'll be honest, I was shocked whenever I saw a load of riders using the wet tyre because we saw on Friday how quickly it dried. If it didn't rain again... There was no way a wet tyre was going to survive. We also knew what the cutoff time was because in the Friday practice we saw in and around the 145, that was the time to make a change onto the onto the slick. So with that being the case, when Bassani on the third lap of the race is down in the 1 minute 46s, you're there like, you're on the wrong tyre. There's no chance this tyre will work. Johnny's already up into P4, P3, trying to pick riders off and looking confident. So you're looking at it immediately and saying, that's his chance to win. And that's how it played out. I thought in the Super Bowl race, Gordo, really impressive from Scott Redding. He was smart. He's, he lined up on the grid and he said he looked around and he saw lots of other riders and intermediates. And he thought, oh, that's a bit interesting. And then they get into the warm up lap and everyone's looking very comfortable out there in the interest. And Scott just said, this isn't the tire to be on. I've got to change. And he came straight into the pits, put on the interest, started from pit lane at a little bit of a handicap, no doubt, because you you come to turn one five six seconds behind everyone else but Reading saved the minute for the pit stop and then he was able to come through come away with a, a fourth place finish and again like we've seen so many times from Scott when an opportunity presents itself he's able to to use the leveler of the weather to have a good result yeah he spoke extensively about that um and it definitely worked out for him he does like most even though he doesn't like most if that makes any sense. He's had a few arguments with people about riding at Most. He, he's, he's very vocal about the danger in Most. Um, but being Scott, he then just goes out and nails it anyway. Um, so yeah, that was it. It shows what is possible with that BMW when everything's working right. And okay, tyres were the story of almost all the races on the weekend. But ultimately, they got a fourth place. You know... I, he went well last year. He went well there on a Ducati, you know, the year before. It's kind of, it's up and like Scott's. When you look at Scott's season, and it's up and down, pretty much. Even when he was riding the Ducati, you know, because he would fall off or he would something would go wrong or whatever. Um, but that BMW still got potential. I think that is if there's one time we can leave most for with an idea of is think, well, look at what Top Rack did on the Yamaha. You know, if we're looking at top rack next year on a BMW, you're thinking maybe Most is a place that even if it's been tough up till then, there might be something that he can do there because he loves the place so much. He just loves it. Um, and the BMW, when it's set up right, when they find some kind of combination, is a good motorcycle. It's just not consistent. And what the changes are made behind the scene might might make it so. But it was great to see Scott up there. He's so he's so good for the media. He just says what he's thinking. You know, he's a clever boy, but he sometimes gets it wrong. Everybody can get it wrong. I'm not criticising him. But, you know, he just says what he's thinking, even if he just thought it up on the spot. And he'll tell us. And it's fantastic. And the punters love him for it. Why wouldn't they? He's a character. 
when he's running about with his Nigel Mansell moustache and all that, and you know, every time you see him, he's done something different. This is, you know, you think of like a, a slightly calmer Aaron Slate. Every time t- Aaron Slate used to turn up with a new haircut, a, a more radical one than the last one, and he's that way. He's a character, and he shows it. What he wears, everything else. You need people like that to contrast against the kind of more traditional people. So, yeah, I hope he stays. I hope he gets a good ride next year, whatever he's doing. Well, that's one of the big question marks, Gordon. What is Scott going to do next year? Because at Imola, he said that we were going to get an announcement on the Sunday. And exactly. And that all went very quiet. And then after Imola, it was finally broken that Ray was looking to talk to Yamaha and seeing if there was an option there. And then suddenly the mechanisms of why Reading's announcement was delayed started to fall a little bit into place because everything that we were told at Imola was if he was going to stay in a BMW, it was going to be the Bonovo bike, so an independent bike. And suddenly there's a chance of a factory seat. The Kawasaki might not be the best bike on the grid anymore, but it's still a factory seat. And for Reading... It wouldn't be a big surprise if that's the carrot that's dangled in front of him right now and trying to figure out, is that a seat that he can get onto? And that's been what's delayed the announcement a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know if that's if that's a real thing, whether that's going to happen or not. Because again, it would be then two British riders again for a Spanish-based and a global manufacturer team. Um, I think, obviously, look at the record of the big man. If you look at the, the three people leading the championship, Scott's got a, a better record than most, uh, recently anyway, than most of the other ones. Something like Van der Mark can always do, uh, you make a good thing. But you've got all these other names in there now that would, would be able to take that ride over and at least be a very interesting prospect. Bassani, Petrucci, you know, if you, you look at all the people that, in theory, in the world we live in now, anybody could ride that bike. That would be a very interesting setup. Um, the Kawasaki isn't the bike to be on anymore, but that Kawasaki team is a team to be in. Be- even if it's taking Jonathan eight rounds to win a race this year. So the prospects are... I think we'll still see a few surprises. We Three four rounds ago, we thought we knew it was going to happen. And now things have changed again in the rider front. Some, as one person makes their mind up or is, doesn't get the opportunity they were hoping for, then the whole dynamic changes. Every, everybody who was going to move into the next slot suddenly, uh, it's like buying a house in England. You know, you can always be gazumped to the last minute. Why, why would you do that, Gordo? Why would a Scotsman look to do that? Why would an Irishman look to do that? I'm more than happy. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, partly also because of the house buying system. But seriously, you, you know, having bought a house in England, if, you, you, if somebody comes with a better offer, you're out. You could be halfway through moving out of the house and, and you're stuffed. So I think that's where we are this year. There's been a lot of certainties than any other year. You know, th- we know the gravity's moving towards something and it doesn't. So I'm not saying that X is going to go here for sure or Y is going to go there for sure. Because I think it's, they're still, even the teams are still kind of scratching their head and making their mind up. Yeah, there is a lot of balls that have to fall before any decisions are made. You mentioned about Bassani and Petrucci. I have to say, if you're sitting on a Ducati and you've got the option to move to the factory Kawasaki, I, I think you'd be foolish to leave even the independent teams because Kawasaki isn't the bike it used to be. And I'd be honest as well, for me, Provac, as good of a team as that's been over the years, their big thing's always been stability. But now that they need to, they do need to make big changes because the bike isn't as competitive as it used to be. That's when... Fresh faces makes a big difference. We saw, obviously, on the electronic side, they've made some big changes in the last year. But I think it's one of those situations where Ducati, Yamaha, they've moved ahead of Kawasaki, and Kawasaki need to need to change things up as well. I think we're looking at next year, in the last four races of this year, how competitive people are going to be, because Kawasaki have had two concession uh, allowances, that they haven't been able to use because they need the third of the extra uh, camshaft and associated parts. I think it's the way it's referred to in the rules. Well, with 500 more revs, that Kawasaki looks a lot better bike than it does now. With usable 500 revs, then they can start playing with the gearing and get it to work properly. They can't do it now, but they're one set of concessions away from being able to be more competitive. Yamaha already got 250 revs 
and Top Rack didn't answer the question of whether they're using them now or not to be at the weekend. Maybe that was just a language thing he didn't quite understand. Um, but that looks a better bike with 500 usable, reliable revs on it. And the Ducati's lost another 250, and it might do but before the end of the year again. Which makes that a very big difference. I did speak to the technical boss of Ducati at the weekend, and he said, you know, the 500 revs and so on, is, is that's going to have an effect now, even on their bike. And I think it makes life... Maybe that's why Batista was riding the way he was in traffic. It's more difficult for him in traffic now. For me, Gordo, the 250 revs never is something that makes a big difference. But 500 does... And I'd be really surprised if we get to checkpoint three and it's not another 250 that's docked on the Ducati. They're then 750 revs potentially for the season. And that does make a big difference because they'll still have the top speeds. They'll still have the inherent advantages that that V4 engine gives them. But suddenly they lose some of that drivability that they have through linked corners. They have to make some extra gear shifts. They have to do different things. Now, it's still the bike to be on. And I think that that was pretty clear from... I think Petrucci probably showed it really well. The exit of turn two towards turn five. He was able to overtake a lot of people there. That's the drive out of two. But then also how you're able to change the direction while you're while you're on the gas. So there's there's good strengths for that bike. But losing another 250 revs could just, just blunt it a little bit. And I think that it's one of those misconceptions. When people hear us talking about, oh, they have to do this, they have to do that. Everyone seems to think that it's because everyone's against Ducati, but it's they're doing a great job, but it doesn't it doesn't balance out with the ethos of what we have in the championship now, and that's been something that's been the case for the last seven or eight years. Johnny raised the reason that we have that it's because he was too successful on the Kawasaki, so then suddenly you had it where this balancing and whatever way you want you want to call it was brought in and I think it's one of those things that now we'll start to see what happens with Ducati but at the weekend Gordo we saw Petrucci have one of his best weekends he qualified well at the middle of the front row he was able to come away with a couple of podiums and he looks much happier now he looks like the Danilo Petrucci that I think everyone expected to come to the world SBK paddock yes he's had enough time now um I think he's proof um, and he says it himself that this is a much tougher championship than a lot of people in, a, in the highest echelons of the sport really give it credit for. Not that they pay attention to it anyway, other than superficially, but that's just the proof of the pudding. Um, it's like somebody suddenly jumping back to BSB, you know. There's no guarantees they're going to be brilliant straight away because the riders know the track so well, it's so different. So that it took even a rider as good as him. And remember the vast experience he's got now. He's He's a rookie in this class. But he's been around forever and he started off in superbikes. So he understands Pirelli's and production bikes and production derived bikes from the early days when he was racing in the, in, in, in the World Superbike paddock. So he's a more, he's an incredibly rounded individual. He sits there in interviews, he looks serious. Sometimes he looks as if he's going to, you know, lose it completely. And then he makes a joke and there's a wee sly side eye at you, you know, because he, he's kidding. But he's very intense, very intelligent in his own way. He speaks beautiful English. Because he wanted to learn to speak it. He's such a, another great character. He wanted to learn to speak English well, you know, and his brother lives in Australia and all the So his, his English is good. He uses, he uses a, a degree of vocabulary, which is actually quite impressive even for an English speaker. And, you know, he's an incredibly interesting person. And then when you get him on the bike, it's just like, well, you know, me and Johnny had a bit of a, you know, I knew I was taking a risk and I knew I was, I was um, you know, and you know Johnny had to move to let me go through it. It could be quite easy for Johnny not to be a gentleman and and push him out, but he didn't because then Johnny risked also falling as well. So you know he's he's very aggressive, very experienced, obviously talented. What's he? You know he's one of these people who could ride anything, old school. Um, and he's coming onto the game. He's now understands what's going on underneath him, and the team Ducati, whoever have been able to change it as much as you can nowadays to help him, and also. He's just had, like Bassani, the same restriction put on him. It's not Batista that's getting these rev drops as the season goes on. It's all the Ducatis. That might be something that needs to be addressed in the rules to stop it, you know, everybody being dragged down because the Kawasaki privateers suffered a lot. The more Johnny got things taken off, they that's why they're not competitive. So 
Yeah, but Petrucci's a beast in a in a good way. He's a beast of a rider, and that's great to see. Yeah, and you're a beast of a man, and the best way I can mean that, Gordo. Um, when you look at uh, <laughs> Ducati, you've got Petrucci, Bassani, Rinaldi, and Nicola Bulaga, and they're all fighting it out for that factory seat for next year, the Aruba seat for next season. Now, I think everyone in the paddock would be shocked if it isn't Bulaga, and that's probably going to be announced in the next couple of weeks during the summer break. When we spoke to Rinaldi on Friday, he was very... He's very open about it, Gordo. He's clearly been told he's not a Ducati rider next year with the Aruba team because he the way he spoke was I can understand how Ducati will yes. come to this decision. You know, he was he was very much resigned to his fate, which means, as far as I'm concerned, he's been told we're gonna to try and figure out how to keep you on a Ducati for next year, but you're not on the Aruba bike. That means that someone's been told you're gonna to be on the Aruba bike. But Bulig is about to win a world championship and with the best will in the world, Bautista's always shown himself to be a better rider than Bulaga, so therefore, Bulaga's unlikely to go in and upset the apple cart. He'll go in, he'll learn from Bautista, similar to someone like Locatelli with Toprak, where you can learn from that rider, get closer and closer to them, and see how it progresses. But if you're Bassani, Rinaldi, Petrucci, are you feeling a little bit stepped over? Uh, yeah, I think any of them uh, would. Maybe Petrucci's the least of those, um, despite all the things I said about his talent and so on. Because for me, uh, Bassani's still a... He's not young. He's not a young rider. Jonathan said that, and it's true. He's not actually that young, Bassani. But he to me, he has done enough to say, OK, if we were going to give Rinaldi the possibility, Bassani's the next fast Italian, young Italian talent to do it. Remember, all four of those guys are Italian. So, you know, it's a kind of funny situation. It actually makes it more difficult for them. Um... But, but who who deserves the ride? Any of them, you know. But Ronaldo has unfortunately shown that he's not going to be the successor to Batista for Ducati's World Championship ambitions. I think something like Bassani, even just because of his attitude, it's possible. He, he's he's he respects people. Yes, he respects what they've done, but he shows no respect for them on the track. He just sees him as another rival. A factory team might be exactly what he needs. To for people to go in and say, stop doing that, stop doing this, look at this, show them all the data that, that, that he needs to change the way he races and not be as aggressive at the beginning. He needs to look after the tyres a bit more, but his talent's amazing. And he's not as riding as well as the top three guys are now, but it seems to be his talent could take him into those echelons of winning races, which is what you want for your second factory rider. And Michael hasn't done that, you know, not recently, so... That that's the problem for Michael. For me, Bassani always starts every weekend tenth, and then he becomes seventh by Saturday when you get into the races, and then on Sunday he's in a position to attack for the top five. That's where this weekend was really important because he was fast from the get go on Friday, and then the weekend never really got going for him. He still comes away with two fourth place finishes on Sunday in the Super Bowl race and race two, but it always felt a little bit like maybe that should have the step should have come a little bit earlier. And yes. that's one of the things that Bassani does need to make an improvement on. Some of that could be down to the Moto Corsa team as well. Like, there's no doubt about that. You pay for what you get from Ducati. And that's one of the big things where when Mark VDS come in next year, you know for sure that there's going to be no stone left unturned. Whereas with Moto Corsa Go 11, you always question about the budget. You always question, are they putting in everything that Ducati need to be to be done on the financial side? I think he gets the same bike. He's got a very high level of bike. He's not. He never complains about what he has and the speed of the bike and anything else. I don't think that's the issue, but it's testing. It's all the things that a privateer team can't bring to the party. It's leading development. It's going down a development path. Ducati are not going to go down a development path for Motocorsa and Bassani. They, they involve uh, maybe Barney Spark in a few things, but they're not... In a factory team, you have the right unless they're literally favouring one guy over the other, you have the kind of right to go in your direction. Motocross are just following Ducati's direction. Maybe, again, when you get into... And Motocross is a really good team, obviously, look at what they're doing. But they're not a massively experienced team. It's not like GSE coming to, to World Superbike 20 years ago with X number of wins and, and, world, and future world champions already in the riding for them. 
that's not what we're talking about here. They do an amazing job for the size of the team they are. And that part of that's down to Bassani. They've got... But a factory team is a factory team and it's all the things that go on behind the scenes, director, manufacturer, leading development is what makes a difference. Maybe that's what Bassani needs and maybe not because a lot of the Italian journalists and TV and everyone else, people are like, yeah, but is he any better than Ronaldo? And maybe that isn't, the answer to that is no. I've always defended Michael up until recently because I always thought he was the best decision for Ducati to make to keep winning world championships. He was the rider came in to make sure that he was that solid, dependable number two. He hasn't been that this year. And a lot of that comes down to bad luck. Ronaldo's just had nothing but bad luck this year. But when it's nothing but bad luck this year, last year was a bit of a struggle. You know, the momentum just builds where a change is needed. I'm interested to see what happens with Ronaldo with a change of scenery. I'd be interested to see what would happen to Bassani with a change of scenery, a change of bike, whether it's Lechwona goes to MotoGP to replace Rins at LCR and suddenly someone like Bassani goes to Honda. You know, an exciting superbike rider going to the Honda with experience the tyres, experience what a Ducati's like. That'd be really interesting. A young rider with with it all to prove, or at least an in well, a rider earlier in their superbike career than Bautista or Haslam whenever they went to Honda. So that could be something that would be very interesting. But we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. When we look at the independent riders, Gordo, let's look at Yamaha as well, because the GRT Yamaha squad's always an interesting one. The Yamaha junior team, same machinery as what you get in the factory team. But Dami Agador, he's clearly been badly affected by arm pump the last couple of rounds. He's talked about it a lot more in Moss than he had the previous rounds. You wouldn't be too surprised if he has surgery again in the summer break. But the last couple of rounds... He's just been beaten by Remy Gardner. And it was great to see this weekend, Remy made a big step. He was fast on Friday inside the top five, qualified on the front row with the grid. And then he was able to come away with decent finishes as well on Sunday. It was one of those things where I think for everyone, we were waiting for a moment for Remy to start to click. And two top six finishes on Sunday, at least is a good sign for that. Yeah, he said the team made a, a, a technical breakthrough at Donington. They found something that had been not right all year. And when they did that, things got a bit better. Obviously, in Imola, new track, very very different track. Um, in most, yeah, things started to click for him. Um, and ended up qualifying on the front row in a very weird qualifying session, but he was fast there. He was, he was right up front. Um, so obviously a step has been made. The interesting thing for me will be the next step, which is learning to be at, if he can continue that pace, he then has to learn how to do that pace on the tyres to get into 20 laps, 21 laps in the longer races where the big points are scored. That's the next breakthrough for him. I mean, obviously podium and then and, and winning a race would be the really big breakthroughs, but I mean in terms of development, as you might expect for a Moto2 world champion to, to be able to progress to, that's the next thing that him and Yamaha have to get is to be able to do be top six every race of the year and one of them is going to be a podium and then one of them might be you know you can always dream you know there's a few dreamers that dreams came through in the paddock at the weekend um, all riders have their nightmares but sometimes their dreams come true as well um, and Gardner he's obviously quality I mean he's a motor two world champion you know there's a lot of them about in world superbike or super sport or have been Um Anybody who comes to World Superbikes Moto Two World Champion is going to be a potentially top rider, whether they make it to the top or they don't. But they they should be able to, if they get the right brakes and and everything works for them at the right time. Just you mentioned there about riders having their dreams come true, Gordo. Obviously, it's a good segue for you to be able to talk about Taz McKenzie as well, because this this was this was special for everyone. Because no matter where you looked, there was something that people could take as something positive from this. Honda's first win since 2016. Uh, Midori Muruwaki's first win as a as a team manager in her own right. And then for Taz, his first win at world championship level. And then for you, Gordo, the first time you've seen a Scotsman win since your mate McPherson won in 99. So this was, this was something special. Yeah, it was... That race was... I'll never forget that. I've done a lot of races now, Steve, as you have. A lot of races. 
But forget any link that I may have to, you know, people at wear tartan at, at weddings and things. Ultimately, that race was just mad. And the fact that a Honda won when it had been nowhere all year, there, there's all, all levels of fairy tales of that. They got a better engine this weekend from Paget's, which was faster than the one they had. He was still second slowest through the actual speed trap, but he, he's instantly found a, a better engine than the one he'd been using. The team got it to work well enough. He was a little bit better in some qualifying. He was certainly a happier bunny. Not happy. And then the circumstances allowed a guy who very recently won BSB to come through using his head, using his skill. Did you see the way he passed Bulliger? I mean, Bulliger sat up and looked round. He thought, how can somebody be coming past me that fast? He couldn't believe what had just happened to him. Round the outside in a big long left. There was a million different elements to that. You know, all the work and effort Midori's put in and for almost no reward and they won a race in Supersport you know, with a rider who'd been toiling who's still got a wee he's definitely walks a bit funny he's still not bazillion percent fit um, a first time season more of a superbike rider than a super sport rider obviously he was a good super sport rider in the UK but that's a while ago now you couldn't make up the levels of fairy tale of it it was fantastic and everybody was happy for him even the rivals were happy for him that doesn't happen very often. I thought it was really interesting, Gordo, that I was chatting to Taz earlier in the weekend and I was asking him, you know, what's the plan going forward? And one of the things he said was, do you know what, I just want to stay in Supersport. I want to be successful here rather than immediately look to jump onto a Superbike. And then, fair enough, it all came into into place. There's no doubt it's 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 a lot of luck that goes your way. But then you have to be the rider that gets it done. And the second he hit the front, I had no doubt he was going to be able to win it because winning's natural for Taz. That's what he's done his whole career in the UK. So getting to the front of the field wasn't going to be a case of, oh, shit, what do I do? It was always going to be a case of, yeah, let's just hit our markers, make sure that you're consistent. He was brave when he had to be. It started to rain. Other riders came into pit. And he said that his mechanic said, you can come into the pits if you yeah. want. I'm not going to change your tyres because <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you're if you on the same tyres as everyone else, we're not going to win. And that was what made up the decision for him. And to stay out and be brave was great. But don't forget as well, Adam Norden stayed out. He came away with a top five finish. Two MIE Hondas inside the top five. The team did a really good job to prep their riders for what was going to happen. And then they executed it really well. I thought when Schroeder came through, there was a brief moment where you thought, how fast is the track right now? Because if the track is fast, Schroeder can catch McKenzie. But the track wasn't quite fast enough for Marcel. There was still a little bit too much rain out there and it meant you had to be a little bit underneath the limit. So for Marcel, picking up 20 points is more important than anything else. And then for Taz, he was able to just about make sure he could hold him off. But I thought it was I thought it was great. I thought, like you say, Gordo, it was a fairy tale. And we had the same in 300s as well. We had Mahendra on Sunday after the massive downpour. We had an hour-long delay for 300s. I don't think I've ever had to know so much about 300s as as I did at the weekend just because we had such a big delay. And then you come through for the race. Mahendra wins that. The day before, Lennox Lehman, he wins what's effectively his home, grand, his home round. He's from just across the German border. But for all these things that happened, three different riders having their first win in their career, it was a special weekend. It was entirely special. Um, and that's why, yeah, this, things like this don't happen every week. If we ever, it would have been a special weekend if one of those things had happened. As you say, but all three of those things happened. Then you introduced the Honda thing from Supersport. It's, it's not likely to. The KTM is a competitive bike. The Yamaha has a competitive bike in the 300 class. The Honda simply not. So when you looked at what Taz did when he, when he got the chance, so the chassis in that bike was probably, or the potential for the chassis to be good in that bike is already there. But the engine's always, a, it's just not a fast engine. When he got a slightly better engine, and he said to me, there's no way he'd have won it on his other engine. He would have been caught by Schrotter. He just wouldn't have had the, the performance in the straights to back up what he was doing in the corners. But it was the way he rode with not maximum risk. It was right on the edge and not any further over, but pushing every time. 
right on the edge, which is glorious. It's one of those ones you could just watch him riding and still be entertained. And that, unless you're a real anorak, doesn't really happen very much. You know, but you could see the commitment he had without being mad about it. He wasn't crazy. He didn't win it from a, a baseline of madness. He won it from a baseline of experience, skill and determination. And that was, it was a, I think anybody could just enjoy watching that guy riding that bike, passing people, you know, like easily. I mean, really easily. Yeah, I have to say for me, Gordo, what made it special was the fact that it was Marowaki. It was the story. You know, you, yeah. you said at the top of the show that we don't really care who wins. I don't care who wins as long as I get a good race. Like the championship battles, all those kind of things, whenever you get a close season of championship battles, it's great. But as long as the races are good, I don't care who wins. I don't care where riders come from. I don't care what bike they're on. And this was one of those situations where the rider that won that Supersport race could have been from Timbuktu and everyone would have still thought, this is just too good of a story. And it really was. And Midori, I mean, the person who won biggest out of this is arguably Midori because she was the one that took the brave decision to leave Japan. I remember interviewing her very early. I found out very early what was going on in an interview with her while she was in the Czech Republic setting the team up on Zoom or whatever. Um, and at the time she said no no I I told people I was going to do this I'm going to do it and if we do it we'll do it properly now they've been unlucky because the Honda's just not competitive the Superbike or the Supersport bike but they've won a race that is vindication for her for the gamble she took she's a woman in a man's world whatever anybody thinks motorbike racing is still very much a man's world Um, and she's yeah, you can say she's got a lot of experience because she's a Morawaki and we know the legend of the name that is in, uh, in production racing and GP racing. But that takes an awful lot of personal commitment, courage, intelligence and all the other things you need to do it. And as I say, the results haven't been a, any reflection particularly on her, her or her team's ability to do things more than the bikes aren't just aren't quite competitive. Um Although it's interesting that that Superbike team stay much more conventional than the factory team have been going. Um, it's just not very... It's just They're not getting the results because the bike can't. Yeah, and I think it's pretty clear on the factory as well. That's the case. It was good to see them come away with a top five finish for Lekwona in the strange race conditions on Saturday. But again, we saw HRC just don't have the answers right now. And like you say, Gordo, the MIE Honda is a much more conventional bike. When riders jump onto the HRC World SBK bike, there's always a, a lot of doubt about it because it just does things that they don't expect. And then they jump onto the Suzuka spec. I'm obviously going to be working at Suzuka this weekend for the eight hours, and I'm expecting, well, Honda's going to win it. I've got no doubt about that. But that bike works well because it's a much more traditional feeling from the bike. And that can't come down to just the fact that it's used in Bridgestone tyres because superbikes all over the world use the Pirelli tyres and we've seen it in BSB that the Honda's a competitive proposition there. So there's something that has to be a big question mark about their World SBK programme. The really weird thing that Lekona said uh, on, yeah, they were on Saturday in the media scrum was that they'd also, kind of like Gardner, they'd made a kind of breakthrough to say, okay, this is the base of the bike and so on. That doesn't necessarily, to me, be backed up by the other results they're having. But he himself has obviously got a kind of base that he's been looking for, or somebody he can rely on a bit more. And he said he, could, he felt he could go more to the limit without the 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 bike really just... I, I don't know where the limit is. He said the way the bike is, now he can ride up to the limit. The problem is... The whole the whole project has taken this long to get to where they are. I was surprised at Lacona saying that because outside it doesn't seem like it's improving. That is a problem for any factory team when you're not really improving. Um, but Lacona, for him, at least said that he thought the last two rounds for him were a lot better. So let's hope after the summer break and the eight hours out of the way, then Honda can focus a bit more attention and give that bike give that team give Honda the chance to improve because it doesn't look like they've been doing very much of that recently they've been changing they haven't been improving I always think one of the things we've seen this year Gordo is that 
if you qualify well, you get good results. And for Honda, especially Lekawona, he's qualified on the fifth row of the grid more often than not, or more often than qualifying inside the front top 10, let's say. So once that's the case, you're then left in a position where no matter how well you're riding, you're not making up the time that comes from coming through the pack. And that's where when we've seen Aguilar qualify in the front row of the grid, he scored well. When Brad Ray qualified on the second row of the grid in Imola, he came away with a top six finish. When Gardner qualifies in the front row of the grid, he has his best weekend of the season. Same for Reading a few times. If you qualify badly in World SBK, it's too close now to get away with anything. There's no hiding place because even though the BMW and the Honda are the fourth or fifth best bikes on the grid, they're not that much slower than all the other bikes. So it's just difficult to make your progress. And the other thing to go to explain about Lekona as well is you need to be confident in the front end. You need to push to overtake someone who, exactly as you say, is a top-class rider riding a a top-class bike, riding it well. You've got to to do something a bit, not risky, but you have to push up to the limit to even overtake these people, even once. And when you've got a bike that you don't know where it's going to fold on you or you're not sure what's coming back to the front back, he said his feedback is much improved. So that aspect should be better for them. But it is, as you say, quite, you know, when you look at Lucona um, and Catalonia, looking at my wee results list here, qualify fifth, sixth, fourth, ninth, you know, and, and the, when he doesn't qualify as well, it's exactly what you said. It's either a, a fall or he just doesn't get the result because he's not got confidence in the front of the bike. He said the bike is now delivering much more feedback the last two rounds. That's the word I was missing that I couldn't remember off the top of my head. Feedback and feel is what he said he's now found he hasn't been able to find before. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do in the last four rounds because that kid's got talent and he's a super bike rider to his boots. The way he talks, the way he laughs, the way he doesn't take in, he takes the job super seriously. But in the media scrums, he's one of the ones that's trying to make jokes and, and, and make points and he understands it's important to talk to the media. He's a character. I, like, I really like him. I I would be disappointed if we lose Eker to MotoGP because he has been good since he came here in terms of what he's like for, for us to deal with. And he's a good rider. He is someone that certainly wants to go back to MotoGP and who can blame him. But it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Gordo, just for before we finish up, Michael Vandermark back on the grid. This was a, a feel-good story for everyone until about two laps into the weekend when Van der Mark got spat off the top of the BMW again after they had a technical failure. But for Mikey, I always say it, and, and I'm probably guilty of saying it too often on air, after a rider comes back from an injury, they need to have that crash. They need to walk away from it. And Mikey was able to walk away from it, scored points in both feature-length races this weekend, and now he goes into the summer break, he's back on the bike, he has a two-day test at Aragon, and then you come back for those last four rounds of the year. Yeah, he probably needs this break more than a lot of people, which is bizarre considering how uh, how problematic this season's been for him and how many races he's missed. But he needs to get fully strong. He's come back. It would have been an awfully long gap without any racing if he had to wait till after the summer break. So that was a kind of one tick in the box of, of full recovery. I interviewed Michael about himself for the official programme that will come out in, I think, the last round of the year. In the weekend, I had to get a lot of stuff done it that weekend to because I've got five weeks to be able to work on it, and in an intense few weeks after, um, and he never likes talking about himself, but he was he, he doesn't show the signs of a guy who's been off for injury all that. It's just like talking to Michael as if he'd never left. His attitude, his mentality, his quiet and under the radar personality is what keeps him going. He's a, he's been a self driven literally self-conscious, self-contained and happy about it, human being since he was a child. And if you're going to see anybody just not be affected by this long layoff, it's going to be the inner steel of somebody like Michael Vandermark. What he now needs to do to have a great rest of his career, because he's had a lot of highs in his career already, is to get super strong through the summer and come back putting in at least as good results as everybody else that's riding their BMW. 
because that's what Michael van der Mark can do. I always think, Gordo, that for van der Mark, what we've seen is a rider that's been able to win a world championship in the super sport class and anyone that can come in and take his first race victories in the superbike class as a double win going toe-to-toe with Jonathan Ray and Donington finishes top three in the world championship in the superbike class then goes up against top rack and does a really good job he's clearly a rider not to be underestimated and it's great like you said that he's back again yeah he's he's, he's such a driven quietly driven guy um, who just wants to get on and, and compete. He's an absolute competitor. He won 600 Superstock, he won Super Sport, and into Superbike before he knew it. He did really well on that Honda. Obviously, no one was going to do as well as Jonathan did, but he did really well. Uh, and as soon as he got a, a you know factory bikes elsewhere, he's taken off. It is literally bad luck. He's he's the unluckiest rider the last couple of years. Um, and it would be really interesting to see where that BMW project would be if Michael Vandermark had been fit a whole way through it, racing, testing, everything else, I think there might have been some differences already. Um, they have put changes in place, which should be a great help for them, even after the summer break, because there's already some new people there, but certainly for next season. Yeah, one of the big things for next season that's quite possible is Sylvain Gintoli as their test rider. That'd be a great change if they're able to bring in someone of that ilk to help them with that programme. Gordo, you mentioned that that Van der Mark interview is going to be ran in the programme at the last round of the year. What are you hearing about the last round of the year? Um, well, what am I hearing? Well, I'm hearing different things as time goes on. Um, I think we're going to, I still think I would bet oh, 50p, and that's a lot for a Scotsman, I'd bet 50 new p that we're going to race in Hareth. The question is when? Because there's... I think we might have touched on this in the last podcast. There's, there's events on all the time due, at that time of year. Um, we, you know, the weekend that we should be going to Argentina, there's something on then. The next weekend, is that, you know, so we might see a wee surprise about when we finish. But we, yeah, I, I tried desperately to find out on Sunday, an absolute nailed on date, and let's say I've now got cancelable, for no cost. Over three weekends for Hereth at the end, middle and end of October. So one of them's got to be right. One of them's got to <laughs> hit the bit. You know, I'll be able to cancel the other two without any loss. But there must be somebody in the same hotel taking bookings from some weird guy in Scotland and Spain going, why is this guy got three hotel weekends booked? And then a gap between them. So the answer to that is hopefully, I was expecting to actually find out today. Uh, you know, everybody would find out today for sure. Um, but they, it's got to be soon because the people have got to make plans. I know we've got a long break coming, but you know, you've got to organise things now to be for what two months or two and a half months, whatever it is, is going to be till then. So yeah, I think we're we'll find out tomorrow. If it's not Hareth and it's not sometime in October, I'll be very surprised. But no one knows except the people who know and. I think even on Sunday they genuinely didn't know. You know, they they, they maybe they didn't know hundred percent on Sunday, even the organisers in in the circuit. Hopefully, we'll find out, Gordo, before we have to go to Hareth for the last round of the year. Yeah, but, um, yeah, it would be nice. We're into summer break know. now. We're into the summer break now, Gordo, and you've got a nice holiday coming up. I am going to your place, Steve. I'm going to the Emerald Isle. I am going to let's let's roll out a few Irish things before we go. Let's annoy people before we go. No, we're going to Ireland, my wife and I, uh, and she told me, and it's true, we have never been on a longer holiday together, only us two, ever, over thirty years, together. It's actually true. I couldn't believe it, and I kept no, no, what about this? But then you found out. Oh, no, we went with her mom and dad, or her mom, or or her sister or the two families, or my mum and dad's timeshare in Spain when they had it. You know, when we count back all those holidays, the only time we've ever been away together is two or three days. That's not a holiday, that's a, a short break. We have never been on a long holiday together. So for 10 days we are going to uh, take the ferry from Scotland, go to Belfast, night in Belfast, uh, night in Portrush, I'm sure where the North West takes, takes place, I'm sure she'll be fascinated to know where that was. 
Um, but I used to go on holiday there as a kid, so I know that. I've got a lot of family in Northern Ireland. Um, and she's got a lot of family or distant family in the south and in Ireland, Ireland. So we're going to do a wee tour around the west coast, a bit of the wild Atlantic way, go over to where she's originally from in the middle of the country, um, go into Dublin, and then we're going to come and um, knock your front door. No doubt you'll be hiding behind the sofa um, when we turn up trying you know, <laughs> not to answer the door because, you know, that's that's the way it's going to be. Uh, see you guys and then head home. So I'm going to be, I think we're 10, 11 days all in on a kind of mild driving holiday just to show my wife the, the place because her, her maiden name's Murphy. So obviously that's where all her folks are from. Uh, and I've got a lot of Irish family and DNA. You know, I did my DNA. So I was no strange place to me, but I don't get there often enough anymore. I used to go every year almost as a kid. Um to see family and have holidays. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I just hope the weather in August better than the weather in July has been for everybody. Because I think Ireland, Britain, it's just been awful. You know, July's been yeah, pretty, it has. pretty washed out. It's, it's been pretty bad. I've got Jason Bridmore coming over for a few days golf and he's just dreading the fact that he booked non-refundable tickets because <laughs> he looks at the forecast app and it's just constantly looking like there's going to be a lot of rain. And uh, we'll wait and see, Gordo. You know, at the end of the day, you got to play in all conditions. You know, we saw that at the weekend in Most. you got to be fast in the wet, fast in the dry, and uh, sometimes fast in between. And uh, we'll obviously be pretty busy, Gordo, between now and the end of the summer break. you got your holidays. There's also two days of testing, Suzuki eight hours, and then everything just to get ready for that final push at the end of the season. Three races in four weeks in September for that almost triple header for us and uh, it's going to be great when we get back to action but I think all of us probably need the few weeks off now as well Yeah, I mean there is no such thing as, as time off when there's still other races happening because you're still engaged and I'm going to, I've got a lot of work to do in the next month, uh, which is great I'm very happy with that fact um, but we do need time away from the travelling, I mean I go home at 2 o'clock uh, this morning what day is this? Yeah, two o'clock this morning. You know, I mean, after a, another ridiculous journey home and a flight that didn't leave till 10 o'clock at night, you know, we can all do a break from that. But personally speaking, the travel's the thing I like having a break from. What I might do, though, is take the bike for that Spanish and Portuguese, those two Spanish-Portuguese rounds, then go home on the bike and then go to the final round by plane. But I might do that because there's little bits of Spain I've never seen and I want to see. So maybe that's my excuse, you know, save on the flights. It's not a bad option, Gordo. There's been a few times I've had to go from Bilbao down to Valencia whenever I was still working as an engineer and I was going to the last race of the GP season and then had to go back up to work on the Monday. And there's stretches up there in the north of Spain. We were lucky when we had the Navarro round that we got to see it in the middle of summer. Oh, it's beautiful. But it's fantastic up there. Yeah, I mean, you get Pyrenees on one side I've I've done a lot of that. I've I've done most of Spain now. But what I haven't done is that northern bit of Portugal and northwestern part of Spain. The proper out in the taking the, the pounding off the Atlantic part of Spain. Apparently the biking roads up in north Portugal and that bit of Spain are unbelievable. And I think I've been as far as Oviedo. That's it. I haven't got or, uh, whichever one's the most easily, either Vigo or Oviedo, that's as far as I got. And I had to turn back to go to the next race. Yeah, well, for Anthony Nelson, my co-commentator for the morning warm-up sessions, and you know him well, obviously, Gordo, but Anthony lives in Barcelona. He's from Valencia. And for his summer holidays, that's where he's going, Gordo. He's going up there to Galicia and Asturia and just going to tour around there. So that'll be his holiday. My holiday is going to be a case of we got a new dog there a couple of of days before I went to Most. So I've got little Bailey to take care of for the next few weeks as well and try and just train her up. So my summer holiday is going to be action-packed all the way. And no doubt for the Paddockcast podcast, it's going to be action-packed as well because... As we record this, Gordo, we're pretty much straight into the British Grand Prix this week. We've got our British Grand Prix show will be out already, but David, Adam and Neil are all going to be on site and they're going to be flat out because we've got the Paddock Note show and then you're straight into the end of the MotoGP season, the second half of the year where it really does get hectic with all the 
rounds as triple headers and lots of back-to-back so it's going to be a really busy time for the podcast so check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast for our paddock notes show you can actually take out a patreon trial as well a one-week trial to be able to see what you're missing for our patreon content lots of shows on that so check that out and then as always a big thank you to Renthal street for supporting the podcast and gordo a big thank you to you for joining us on it me absolute pleasure i love doing it Thanks very much, Gordo. And until the next time on the Paddock Pass podcast, myself and Gordon Ritchie, big thank you to everyone for listening to the show.